Judge Me, the show about law in real life. I'm Beta Himeka, here with Andy Leonati. Hey, Andy. Hey, how's it going? Good. Today, we have a special guest, Jesse Matsukawa, who is a landlord-tenant lawyer and works with eviction moratoriums in Washington. And he's here to tell us a lot about the ongoing eviction moratorium situation that has been plaguing the nation for the extent of the pandemic and is kind of heating up again. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what you do um, and how you work with landlord-tenant issues and how the moratorium comes into play at your work? Yeah, so I work with uh, low-income tenants. I help them with basically every housing-related issue under the sun that is related to evictions or repairs or security deposits or negotiating with landlords. I have represented people at what's called an unlawful detainer hearing, which is an eviction hearing. Uh, I also work on helping uh, with their records after the hearing with something called a order of limited dissemination and a little bit of everything in terms of negotiating with landlords on various issues. Thanks, Jesse. Uh, And we're really curious to know, uh, particularly now because of the constant uh, back and forth that seems to be happening throughout the past year or so with, you know, the Supreme Court and courts striking down various moratoriums, including the recent CDC moratorium that has been struck down. So would you mind telling our listeners a bit about why that eviction moratorium is no longer in place? Absolutely. So... Supreme Court stuck down the CDC moratorium uh, in a case called Alabama Association Realtors versus Department of Health and Human Services. Specifically, they're striking down the CDC eviction moratorium. The courts found that the CDC exceeded its authority uh, as it did not have approval by Congress. The CDC used a statute called the Public Health Act which typically deals with fumigation and pest extermination. Congress did not renew their authority to do the eviction moratorium through the Coronavirus Relief and Economic Security Act as it expired on July 31st. Um, And previously, the case had gone up to the Supreme Court, and initially Kavanaugh, who was the deciding vote in that case, agreed to allow the eviction moratorium to continue because it was going to run out in a couple weeks. But he indicated that he was going to, the majority of the court was more likely to strike it down because there wasn't going to be any good reason for why the uh, Supreme Court shouldn't strike it down because they weren't likely to, there are four factors for a stay and one of them is likelihood to succeed on the merits. And in that case, the court felt that the CDC could not relate the Public Health Act to the eviction moratorium because the Public Health Act is typically used uh, for fumigation and pest extermination, which is a bit of a stretch. Right. And that Public Health Act is what the CDC was saying gave it authority to enact the moratorium in the first place, right? And that was the only thing it was leaning on? That was the thing it was leaning on, yes. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a, it, it is a bit of a stretch. It was a predictable 6-3 uh, decision um, with conservative justices uh, voting to remove the stay and the liberal justices arguing for it. So I guess I'm wondering, Jesse, now that there is no federal eviction moratorium in place, what 
you know, the news media has been filled with a lot of stories about this kind of forthcoming avalanche of evictions. There are millions of people still struggling with their, still struggling to keep up with their rent payments from the disruption that's happened over the last 18 months. Um, Are you already starting to kind of see more evictions taking place in your work? So in where I work, the state of Washington, we have a rather unique situation because the legislature decided to give tenants a right to counsel. Uh, Because of that right to counsel, there has been landlords seem to be a little bit hesitant to file things. There are la- there are landlords who have filed cases and th- there are cases that have been argued. However, if you are an indigent tenant, so if your income is less than 200% of the federal poverty level, or alternatively, you qualify because you're on certain federal programs, so Medicaid, uh, TANF, or food stamps, you among other programs, you qualify as an indigent tenant, and as a result of that, you are supposed to be appointed an attorney. And it's complicated, but the short answer is that system for right to counsel isn't set up yet. So in the state of Washington, it is being that eviction wave hasn't happened yet, but it's anticipated to happen within the next month. Now, with regards to other states, it there's a great website I recommend. Um, it's called Eviction Lab Tracking, and they have six states and I believe 30 cities within those states. And the general trend when I did a cursory look over it was that most of the states are going up. Okay. This, the states that are going up the most, though, are the states that have had protections for the longest period of time. So states like Minnesota, states like California, those sorts of states, that's where you see the biggest bump. Okay. In Texas, though, uh, evictions have stayed mostly flat. Why do you think that is? Especially Austin, where rents are pretty high. Right. I think it's because the eviction moratorium... When it was in place, when it was put in place, uh, you have this time period where you only can evict, I should mention, with the CDC moratorium, it only applied to evictions for non-payment of rent. You can be evicted for other reasons. Any sort of rowdy behavior, more or less, could still get you evicted. Correct. There are other, and I will say, in the state of Washington, I can only attest to what I've seen from my work, but... I've seen landlords filing other cases for 90-day notices or 60-day notices for intent to sell the property or intent to move into the property. Hmm. And you think that's disingenuous? It could be. Um, some of the cases, there, some cases have had people report that the landlord is renting it out to a new person. Instead of, instead of moving in as they said they would. Correct. Or moving or moving in. I should also mention when it says moving in, it's for a it has to be either for yourself or a very close relative. So uh, a parent, a sibling, spouse uh, or even I believe grandparents are also included. So, yeah, that's that's a great point. Since the moratorium only applies to, you know, for for failure to pay. Correct. That was the CDC one. Yes. That was the CDC one. And what about the uh, the others? 
the one by Congress. Other states actually still have moratoriums in place or they have um, restrictions. So to give an example, the state of New York and the state of New Jersey and the state of Illinois, so New Jersey, Illinois, California. So California has a hold until a little bit later this month. Uh, and New Jersey and uh, New York actually are holding back till next year, so January of next year. So in some states, there still is a moratorium. And there are some localities also that are preserving a moratorium as well. Are these states that have their own moratoriums in place, are they enforced similarly to the CDC, to the federal moratorium? Because with that, a renter had to be proactive in presenting their uh, sort of proof, for lack of a better term, that, that, yeah, their declaration that they were behind on rent and that they were making a good faith effort and all that is, is, does it work the same in those states that have moratoriums in place or is it more just a blanket halt? It depends. It depends. Um, the, so to give you an example, um, so in the state of Nevada, as an example, they have a delay that you're allowed to delay an eviction proceeding if you've applied for rental insurance and you can prove that. That said, as I read for New York, they extended it through Jan- January 15th. Yep. When you say states have blanket bans, uh, so there's no reason that they can, ev- they cannot tenants cannot be evicted for any reason. Is that correct? Well, there, so even with the CDC one, they were allowed to evict based upon, you could evict for those three day notices for those other notices. I'd assume you could still, you could still evict someone for say health and safety reasons or cooking, cooking meth. Yeah. If you're, if you are creating a, well, not just a health and safety risk, but also criminal, as you mentioned there, or a nuisance. It's important to note that at least in the state of Washington again. So you can be also evicted for an unlawful occupant. So if someone is in the property that isn't supposed to be within the property, uh, you can receive a three-day notice for that as well. Now, I'm curious, um, at least in your experience, have you seen you know, landlords try to work around the loophole um, and evict tenants on like just small things, uh, you know, alleging nuisance or alleging things just because they're not paying the rent as a way to work around the moratorium. Yeah, I've seen, I have seen landlords use three day notices creatively. I've seen them use 90 day notices creatively. So intent to sell threats to the health and safety of other people have included, uh, little things. So dog bites, um, trash, smoking, in a non-smoking area, those sorts of things. Things that you typically wouldn't think of as threats to the health and safety of other people, but they've been elevated to a certain level. The one thing that I've always kind of wondered about with this federal moratorium is that a landlord could still, say, try to file for an eviction, and then a renter would have to would have to, you know, file their declaration and say, actually, you can't evict me right now, yada, yada, yada. And, and with a, with a normal run of the mill eviction, not during a pandemic, these things, it takes time. You have to file the, you have to file the eviction and then you have a court date. And then you, if you lose, you know, you can still kind of drag your feet on vacating the premises a little bit and wait for the sheriff to come in and kick you out. If someone has been kind of 
staving off eviction by using this eviction moratorium? Did they have those same kind of protections still or or has the clock already been running on them and and is it going to be a lot easier for a landlord to now just say you have to go i'm gonna this is gonna sound like a broken record but it depends now that's the loyal answer that's the lawyer answer um so generally speaking let's let's say to give you an idea state of washington again um when you receive a notice here you have whatever timeline is in that notice so typically it's, if it's 14 days, you get 14 days, 30 days, what have you. After that notice runs out, the landlord doesn't have the ability to call up the sheriff's department and have the sheriff's department come in and kick you out. You then, then the landlord has to issue a summons for the eviction proceeding for the day of, so for the court hearing. So usually uh, and it, the summons requires you to respond in writing and you get at minimum seven days to respond some some of them have been more generous and they've given more time but seven days is the minimum and from those seven days uh you have those seven days to respond now typically i've seen two instances where landlords will schedule a hearing immediately after those seven days are up and then as a default proceeding so if you don't respond to the summons then they go immediately into the default proceeding and then the court uh, it's heard ex parte and the court continues from that point. Uh, alternatively, though, if you do respond to the summons in writing, so if you respond properly, they if the hearing is scheduled for that day after, they usually allow the tenant to continue the hearing for another week. And usually it's the hearing is scheduled a week after, typically the hearing is scheduled a week after the summons, the last day of the summons that you have to respond by. So usually it's another two weeks, and then from the actual date of the hearing, if you, if the defendant was to lose the hearing, the court would issue the writ of restitution, uh, or they would write up the order for writ of restitution, and then the landlord would serve it to the sheriff's department, and the sheriff's department has to serve the writ on the actual uh, defendant, on the tenant, so they have to go to their go to their house or apartment and put it on the door. And for the writ of restitution in Washington, you have five business days from when it's actually served. Now, notice when I said when it's actually served, because it depends on when the sheriff's department decides to get out there and put it on your door. So the timeline can vary based upon how quickly the sheriff's department gets it gets in gear. Um, that said, it does, at least in Washington, there is a 10 day, they have 10 days to do so and then there's a renewal period for another 20 days after that. It actually sounds it actually sounds like kind of a well-oiled machine there unlike a lot of other states. Yeah, Washington is, has a considerable amount. They've put in a lot of uh, thought into this, especially with the right to counsel program. Well, so with all these deadlines in place, it seems like if if there's a misstep or a missed deadline, is that going to go in favor of the tenant staying in place and the landlord not getting them evicted? So with, oh, so as example, say if they, so say if they don't give seven days for the summons, yes, then that's an improper service of the summons. You have to, and then you have to do another notice and then you have to do another summons. And you have to go through the process again, at least in Washington. 
Mm-hmm. So at least in your state, it's it's more of a it's it's a lot harder for landlords to evict, especially if they if they miss a deadline or a step, then it's in favor of the tenants getting to stay. Is that right? There's the definitely there's some there's some of that. I but I would say that to give you an, an alternative perspective on some of that, the so remember when I was discussing the sixty day and ninety day notices for intent to sell. So landlords don't have to do very much at all to prove that to give you so if it goes to a hearing and the tenant says your honor i haven't seen the landlord produce uh any you know a for sale sign i haven't seen any listings no one has come by the property to inspect uh no one has come by to tour the house i haven't seen a realtor tenant can say all those things and then the landlord can turn around and say well your honor i intend to quick claim this property just sell it, sell it as is, and that's enough for the court. So it, it, it depends. Um, procedurally, yes, you have to follow certain rules. If you don't follow these rules, the notice is defective and you have to do it again. That being said, though, just because you have these other notices that allow, that state various reasons for why you can be evicted, it doesn't mean that it's hard to prove those notices. Yeah, and what's the most common reason you see landlords make to get to get around the moratorium, is it these selling or is it these nuisance type claims? Selling is typically the one that they go with, uh, because or selling is the it has the lowest threshold to beat because intent to move in requires a little bit more. Um, you can argue, well, you have another house, uh, you have somewhere else to live, those sorts of arguments. Whereas. With intent to sell, you, you typically see it going. You can say all of these other arguments, but in the end, the landlord doesn't have to provide too much evidence that they actually intend to sell. So are these landlords actually, do you see them selling in the end? Or are, are they just, I don't know if you stick around and investigate to see if they've actually sold after they win their case, after they win their eviction case. I, I don't typically, uh, after the case is over, I have heard some stories of uh, landlords not doing that. I've also... I should mention, though, there is a penalty now uh, under the statute uh, for wrongful eviction in the state of Washington if you can demonstrate that they aren't actually selling the property. They have to make reasonable efforts to indicate that they are selling it. I'm wondering if we can change gears a little bit because now that so now that the federal eviction moratorium is no more, I want to know I kind of want to know what should a struggling renter be doing right now someone who's been behind for a few months they do not have the money right now to catch up on all those arrears what should they i know that the kind of the the pat answer right now is they should be looking to access federal rental assistance but from but from a lot of the actual anecdotal reporting it's kind of being a little slow in in being distributed is that does that mirror your experience? So there's definitely, I've, I've seen the reports about the federal aid being very slow to get out. Um, I do understand, I'll say this much, in terms of what I've seen, how long it takes a tenant to actually get funds, assuming the landlord agrees to take them, uh, if it takes between two weeks to a month for a tenant right now to get access to those funds. Why would a landlord not agree to take federal relief funds? Is it any different for them? So they do have to provide some information typically, but it's not an overly burdensome amount of 
information. They just need, basically, you could just, if the landlord, at least in this situation in Washington, they have to, in Snohomish County specifically, they have to give a, a lease agreement, and that's usually sufficient. Why would a landlord avoid it? Well, I've seen some instances. It, I, there is a correlation between how much money is owed and how much the landlord wants to, does or does not want to have the tenant in there. So the larger the sum of money typically is, the more the landlord wants to keep them in there. Because at least in Snohomish County, they can cover up to a year's worth of back rent. So as you may guess, if your rent is 1500 a month and you have 12 months, you're looking at a little over, let me see if I, $18,000. And if, the, if you can tell the landlord, hey, I can get you this $18,000, landlord is more likely to take the deal. Now, for smaller amounts of money, I've seen landlords turn up their nose, or if they have other financial situations going on, or they have um, particularly acrimonious relationship with the tenant, uh, that may be why they choose not to. But they do not have to take the money. That's that's the important part. They don't have to. They do not have to take the money. And if they don't take the money, the debt is still on the tenant. That's the case in any state. They don't have to take the federal aid money, but they would normally have to take the rent money if it was coming from the tenant. If the tenant is trying to pay off their debt, yes, because it's it's that's the relationship that already exists. But when you do the federal aid money, they don't have to take that money to relate. And then for other things that you should do as a tenant if you are behind on rent, besides applying for rental assistance, I would say the first thing you would consider doing is talk to an attorney. Whatever attorney is in your local area, there are pro bono attorneys. Um, and there even are some websites that can provide you with legal information. Not, it's not a consultation. It's not representation but it is information that helps you know what your legal rights are. Um, so I would recommend they if look up those websites, um, try to talk to a pro bono attorney or a legal aid attorney. Um, most states do have a legal aid group that will, will be willing to help you if you qualify for their services. And the other thing I would also consider doing is talking to your landlord and trying to work something out. So a payment plan is a possible idea that you could go with and payment plans if you work them, at least in the state of Washington, if you work out a payment plan with somebody and that payment plan is agreed to and is reasonable, the landlord can't evict you for that past rent that you owe. So if you work out a payment plan for six months before, uh, the landlord can't evict you for that debt. They can evict you if you don't pay your new rent. But for your debt in the past, if you worked out a payment plan in Washington, they can't evict you for that. It's sort of like having a kind of like a chapter 13 plan on top of your rent going forward, basically to help you catch up. I would, it, it helps them out because it gives you, it does buy you some time. Um, the other thing I would also recommend is that understand with, with understanding your rights, just because they serve you a notice doesn't mean that the eviction is going to happen immediately. They still have to go through a court proceeding process, typically, at least in Washington, they do. So have I was wondering, have in the cases where the evictions do go forward, uh, as uh, decided by the court, are they any slower in the pandemic than before? Like, has that timeline slowed down a little bit? 
it, it kind of depends. Um, again, unfortunately, I, I, I know it would be a broken record with that. With that, but uh, so in some states, uh, there have been issues where, because of COVID and because of how bad it is, the courts aren't doing uh, hearings in person, and during that time period, what they would do instead is they would do some courts, or at least the courts in Snohomish County, they have done Zoom hearings to try to keep the process going. But Zoom hearings are, well, they have their technical issues just like everything else. So it can delay it a little bit. But in terms of overall delay, I would say it's negligible because the courts have proceeded, at least in Snohomish County, like the Zoom hearings are the same as the in-person hearings. There's clearly a lot going on in any of these proceedings, uh, at least from the tenant's perspective, um, but also from the landlord's perspective. I'm wondering how essential it is to have legal representation when you're a tenant facing these, but also if you're, I mean, there's some struggling landlords out there too. My heart goes out to both parties. Um, I don't know if, if it's, if landlords tend to have attorneys, um, but you know, how essential it is, is it for tenants and landlords alike to have legal representation? Obviously, these studies are specific to the localities in which they occurred. But one study I saw said 90% of landlords have attorneys, while only 10% of tenants do. Uh, unaffordable America, poverty, housing, and evictions. Typically, there have been various studies that determine how effective how long do tenants get when they are by themselves versus when they have either limited representation or uh, full-throated representation, so full representation? Uh, I've seen the number, it, it, it depends on study to study, but the most striking example I can remember is in a Philadelphia study that showed that 5% of tenants who had representation lost their cases compared to 78% of unrepresented tenants. Wow. Yeah, yeah I guess and, that answers that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, there have been other studies that show different degrees of success, but there's another study that showed between 51 and 75% of tenants without legal representation lost their case in court in terms of how much they've lowered it. So the total number of cases for eviction went down when attorneys were put on by 70 70, 77%. And then a decrease in the number of evictions by 45%. So it is striking. You definitely want, if you are a tenant, to try to get a pro bono attorney as quickly as possible because they can provide you with more help. When you compare pro se defendants to defendants with representation across different areas of law, criminal law, that's not surprising. I wonder why you think it is. Is it is it a problem of evidence? Is it a problem of putting together cogent argument? Are judges more friendly to tenants that have attorneys? What do you think? I think there's it's a mix of a few things. So there are many tenants that do not know about uh, their resources, their legal rights. They don't know what they need to do. And I would say, and then this is when they're pro se, and I would say even pro se landlords have the same issue in that they don't necessarily know everything that they need to know. And when you bring in an attorney for either side, it means that the rules that they need to follow with regards to the procedures of how to file the case, how, what to put on the notices, what to put off for the summons, how much time to give, all of those rules that typically are wrapped in, 
someone is looking out for those rules as opposed to when it's both when both of them are pro se and neither of them know the rules. And so I think it's probably because when you have an attorney who knows the law, they are going to enforce your rights better than if you were by yourself. Yeah, and um, Jen, Jesse, any last-minute general advice for tenants on what they should or shouldn't do when facing this situation? Uh, a few things to consider. The first thing is if you're if you are anticipating uh, leaving the property. So if you are planning on complying with a notice, one of the things you should consider is if you have a security deposit, what are the conditions of the property that you're leaving? And make sure that you take pictures and get evidence of the property before you leave. Uh, just so this is to ensure that you get your security deposit back later. Uh, another thing to consider is that I understand it's difficult for people to have somewhere to go and it, it's not necessarily easy to go to a new place or to find a new place. Uh, there are resources available uh, to help with move-outs. Um, some of the federal aid money, at least in Snohomish County as an example, they have the ability to provide for first month's rent, last month's rent, and a security deposit for a new place once you've found a new place. So it's worth investigating into that. Um, Another thing I would recommend people do is that when you are, one of the things that, at least in Snohomish County, that kicks in is if you stay in the property and you go all the way to the hearing and you lose the hearing, you are responsible for paying uh, the attorney's fees for the opposing party, the court costs, and you have an eviction on your record. When that eviction is on your record, uh, a screening company can tell a future landlord that you have that eviction on your record, and that can be used to keep you from getting a new place. Um, but that being said, if you get out before your hearing, and you so if you vacate before the hearing and you tell the landlord, yep, I'm vacating, um, I'm complying, you won't have those extra fees. and those extra fees can add up very quickly. The other thing is if you have legal questions and you, if you receive a notice or you receive a summons or a complaint, try to get a hold, if you're low income and you need help, try to get a hold of a pro bono a legal aid attorney as quickly as possible because the quicker you have help, the quicker it, it'll be, you can get negotiation, you can get a later move out time, uh, it's, it's a better situation overall. For sure. Because none of this, of course, is legal advice. I'll remind our listeners. But thanks so much, Jesse. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.